This is John Stepling. This is Aesthetic Resistance Podcast number 51. And with me in uh, Bowden, Sweden, Johan Edebo. Hi, Johan. Good afternoon. Uh, Hiroyuki Hamada in New York. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hi, John. Corey Morningstar uh, in Toronto in the prison state of Canada. Hi, Corey. Hey, John. And Varun Matha in New Delhi. Hi, Varun. Good evening. All right. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff to touch on, I think. And um, I wanted to, again, thank the people that write letters, emails, uh, to, uh, to me and, and everyone through me uh, at Aesthetic Resistance. Very nice to get them. And... Um, and, uh, you know, at least gives me a little hope for things. Um, but uh, I wanted to talk about, I just want to introduce a little bit at the beginning before we jump off, because there's a lot of things to talk about. Um, what I see in the United States, um, and I'm seeing it long range, uh, is, is, and we've mentioned it, but I don't think we've mentioned it and emphasized it enough, and that is the Trump factor that so much of the narrative is shaped by how radioactive Trump is, how nobody wants to be associated with Trump at all. And my son last night was mentioning this, who is an activist and, and works with um, a group in LA and, and he's, he's quite visible in media now and stuff. And he said, yeah, it's unbelievable the um the the influence the hatred the 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 avoidance of any association with trump that people have and he said it, it makes you wonder and um indeed it does i mean trump has has served an you know an enormous purpose to the ruling class in this uh, you know he has taken this role of mm. um of of cartoon villain and and it's because that you know you do wonder because it it has certainly allowed for what is if you sit back a little uh, you know the narration on covid the narrative is preposterous but it has been um obscured a lot because it, you know you 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 have this this you know fear of being tainted with um any association with trump um, anyway, so that's what I want to open up. Johan. Just a short remark. I mean, <clears throat> this this Trump factor you speak of, I mean, this is an, uh, an old propaganda technique to, to, to like construct this, this nefarious enemy image and then project every undesired political perspective on this, uh, this group or this image so that these perspectives become basically untouchable. And uh, I mean, that, that's uh, the experience you related here in the before the podcast that certain groups cannot consciously self-consciously refrain from <clears throat> touching upon these perspectives because the association with this uh, polarizing uh, enemy image and, and that's I, I don't know how to strategize around these kinds of things it's a really difficult issue yeah, it is. And I will only say, and this segues in, <clears throat> into other things, I will only say that uh, running alongside that 
the the you know Trump figure, the Trump factor, whatever you want to call it, his influence on on the propaganda, on the narrative, um, is tied into this cultic belief in in quotation mark science, right? Mm. And Trump is the the avatar for anti science, mm. um, and and so you have leftists and i mean i could i could there's a roll call of of writers who are self-identified as leftist socialist whatever um who have lined up behind the mainstream narrative some of them very well known some got on facebook uh today to announce you know uh i'm i'm culling people from my friends i've reached the limit of five thousand. so anybody who's an anti-vaxxer now is unfriended i mean besides the the ludicrous absurdity of investing this kind of energy in facebook i mean just above and beyond everything else um it it there's like this pettiness and stupidity attached to that that's mind-numbing and 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 that branches into about a dozen other topics, but but this sort of thing um, is becoming more and more common. And then there was an interview. I just want to make reference to this the, on Jared Ball's radio show, Doctor Jared Ball. And Jared Ball's done over the years some very good things on uh, Jim Crow and, and prison reform and stuff. And um, I always, in my mind, link him a little bit with Michelle Alexander and those people. It was very good stuff. But he had um, Piers Robinson on the show, and uh, I think his name's, God, what's his, his last name's Viragi, and I forget his first name, Pablo, or something like that, an Italian name, Fabio, perhaps, um, and who was terrific, and... Um, and Jared Ball was the voice, and I've heard this a lot in the U.S., and it's a, it's a hard subject to broach, but it is almost like the academic, um, the academic black bourgeoisie is absolutely um, in support of the status quo. They are defending the status quo on this um, wholeheartedly. Uh, I haven't, you know, I don't see any radical dissent coming out of that quarter and um and like the leftists at at places like counterpunch or wherever you know um it's it's uh even though i should know better i'm i remain extraordinarily uh surprised and depressed when i when i come across this now ball's interview was fine he really tried to be fair i mean it wasn't fine but i've tried to be nice here um but he did give a lot of space to viragi and piers robinson who were both tactful but extremely articulate, especially Viragi, about um, the dangers of a of a cashless society, the mm. digitalization of everything, the Schwabian reset, et cetera, et cetera, and and that was important that 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 information got out because a lot of people listened to Ball. Anyway, okay, um, Hiroyuki, yes. <laughs> you were you visited the firefighters i just wanted to touch on that quickly right right so um we have um, um a few uh 
people that are artists who are also firefighters in New York City, and uh, they've been uh, uh, listening to our podcast, and uh, John has been receiving a very uh, nice uh, emails from them saying that it's been very, very helpful in uh, laying out uh, what's going on. And uh, um, um, he was also uh, describing uh, really precious uh, information about what is going on in New York City. And among uh, uh, their colleagues uh, at the fire department, how um, the, uh, the narratives are unfolding, um, uh, the, the strong propaganda effort from the uh, city and the uh, um, authority, and, um, and also uh, how um, the firefighters are uh, processing that as irrational um, um, elements uh, brought to their uh, life. And, uh, and some of them, uh, those artists who are opposing those things are, have been uh, really vocal in um, uh, expressing uh, how uh, this dynamics is uh, happening, but at the same time, it's totally um, untold in the media. So we don't really know that there are opposing forces among ourselves, the workers who are um, uh, being attacked by the, uh, these uh, lockdown measures and uh, uh, right. policies of um, uh, mandates. So- um, Yeah, I, <coughs> sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so um, 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 th th these artists and uh, what they do is uh, extremely interesting. They um, they make those uh, little paintings that that are uh, that can be outside. They are uh, about uh, ten inches uh, at most, like twenty inches. Some are bigger, but maybe you know they're, they're small paintings and. Uh, um, and you can uh, uh, leave it at public spaces, on streets, uh, uh, telephone poles, uh, uh, phone uh, uh, boxes. And uh, so what they do is that they would um, walk around uh, searching for spots so that they can kind of curate uh, their sh own shows with those paintings in the uh, actual environment, the cityscape people are living. And um, uh, I was really, really interested in what they're saying about the fire department and also how they do it, how they um, interact with their environment artistically, um, aesthetically, and uh, make a statement uh, from the position of um, uh, dissent. So yeah. um, I uh, messaged him and uh, asked him uh, if I could come along. So uh, they were uh, happy to hear that I was interested and, uh, and I went and uh, it was really, really, uh, um, uh, I had a great time uh, talking to them. Uh, they're really, really knowledgeable about uh, what we talk about um, uh, every week. And uh, I learned quite a bit about uh, how they see uh, what's happening to them. And um, um, so it was, it was really uh, uh, eye-opening 
experience that there are people who are reacting to the situation with uh, what they can do, and they are having a great time. They, yeah, yeah we, we walked like four hours uh, in the city. Uh, you know, they're firefighters, you know, tough guys. Uh, I, I kept up with them and uh, uh, just with the uh, uh, joy of uh, uh, being with them. Mm-hmm. And um, um, so, you know, I just wanted want to say that uh, it's not hopeless. You know, there are people who are seeing what's going on and taking um, constructive initiatives um, mm. um, that's also connected to their organic life mm. in the city. So this yeah. is really important, I think. Uh, like <laughs> last, last week we talked about, uh, uh, Johan was talking about the importance of uh, networking uh, uh, to cultivate uh, mm. counterculture um, forces. So I, I thought uh, what they're doing is totally uh, that. And uh, it was a beautiful thing. Um, I, th- I think, let me, I'm, oh, and then I'm going to go to Corey, but no, I think it's hugely important what they do and, and, and that they are, um, you know, this is the, uh, as, as the guy said, <laughs> Josh said to me, um, they, you know, this is, firefighters especially in new york are the are the aristocracy of the proletariat right and um these are the heroes of 9-11 and they hold a a particularly important um symbolic position in in the fabric of the culture Mm -hmm. and uh that they are also artists that they have an aesthetic interest and project kind of life project that's not a for-profit endeavor Mm -hmm. is is extraordinary you know there's no mfa in sight and and it this is to me um incredibly important because pretty much everywhere there is um an ever tightening uh narrowing constricting of uh, acceptability for in whatever medium you work in mm. fine arts, music, dance, um, poetry, uh, theater, you, you, um, you have to jump through very particular hoops. You have to network in a very particular way and you have to produce work that um, conforms to a certain uh, set of, um, of, of, codes and values and otherwise you're you're invisible um corey Mm, i just wanted to add to that i mean as as the sole woman on this panel this is why women love firefighters (laughs) (laughs) right i mean we 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 love them and i'm just my heart is full of appreciation and gratitude and respect for um this group hiroyuki um that experience you shared really, really moved me. It just made me feel so much um, hope. And even where I am, it's the, it's the trades people, you know, really um, opposing this, uniting together, opposing the mandatory vaccines. Um, it's really, really heartwarming, right? It's the trades that bring, that bring us um, water, clean water and shelter and those, you know, that do that backbreaking work every day. So I'm just full of gratitude, you know, for for yeah. these people. Yeah. And I, I also wanted to say, John, um, when you were speaking of the Trump thing, 
you know, it's really interesting because in Ontario, you have all the, um, those that would identify as left and progressive, um, you know, doing the same thing. It's now, well, to go through your friend, your friend list and um, get rid of everyone, you know, quote unquote, anti-vax. And it's now, well, people are, are um, getting ready for Thanksgiving and announcing that people that are not um, vax will not be invited to dinner. Um, you know, the Thanksgiving yeah, that yeah. happens on stolen land every year in Canada. And I, it's just interesting because Rob Ford and um, Ontario, this is not just my opinion. This is the opinion of foreign policy, Washington Post, CBC. I mean, they've been writing about this for years that Rob Ford is Canada's Trump, right? A self-avowed racist. You can find these articles all over mainstream, how Rob Ford and Donald Trump shot politics, right? And it's talking about um, uh, about these two, you know, Donald, Donald Trump is basically, Doug Ford is often branded the, the Donald Trump of the North. <laughs> and so it's funny that the same people that use this um, thing with Trump to basically shame people who oppose all, you know, all these fascist measures are also um, over here supporting all these um, same measures that Rob Ford is, is you know, um, and, and <clears throat> imposing on people. And so it's just really interesting. It is. And it's confusing. I mean, um, Bolsonaro, the Brazilian fascist, uh, spoke at the UN, God, I think it was the UN, um, the other day, and he's against vaccine uh, passports. He thinks everybody should be allowed to treat themselves however they want with ivermectin or whatever. And he's not worried about um, uh, the virus and and has no plans to mask people up, et cetera, et cetera. Now this, you know, again, here we are, you know, um uh our 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 cellmate is is bolsonaro uh because uh the the but but it's not that cut and dried of course i mean the right wing in great britain is is pro lockdown um the right wing in brazil now apparently is not uh there are liberal governments that are the most draconian in terms of of we're looking at New Zealand and these places. Meanwhile, in Norway and Sweden, Scandinavia, things are back to normal here. They've officially lifted all restrictions. Now, they issued a very carefully worded statement to say that um, they implied that because of the vaccines and so many people were vaccinated, that that's the reason um, the virus morphed or something. I, the causality is unclear, but that the virus mutated and became a, a, a much less, you know, dangerous um, strain. And that's accounting for whatever low death rate now and them being able to open the which is all nonsense, of course. I mean, they never needed to lock down in the first place, of course. But um, it's interesting that it, they said at the end of this little um, uh, announcement that henceforth, COVID-19 is to be classified alongside other seasonal viruses, such as the common flu, etc., cetera, um, which, you know, is what all of us said 80 weeks ago. But there you are, Johan. 
Yeah, yeah, I thought this this black and white simplification and the the Trump or Bolsonaro factor, it might very very well connect with the this discussion on the the um, Disneyfication or infantilization of society. Uh, I thought this uh, article you recommended was was very good, and it got me thinking about on these issues. And we've talked about it before, <clears throat> but I, th- I think this infantilization in general is a, is a pretty complex phenomenon that goes back for centuries probably but, but it seems to me that it's particularly pronounced in, the, in this frightened and distraught population that's now been subjected to two years of pure propaganda so it, it was nice to hear the the contrasting perspective from Hiroyuki here in relation to to, to this but but I think one of the key signs of, of this uh, infantilization is, is the excessive preoccupation with safety and security that now seems to be yeah. rife everywhere in the, in the wake of COVID. We had an opinion piece over here in Sweden that, that was basically clamoring for domestic vaccine passports because the author, even though he'd had the shots, would not feel safe encountering the unvaccinated in public spaces. And another widely widely spread <clears throat> article told the story about how a, how a fully inoculated elder felt that she had been subjected to attempted murder in, in being visited by this dreaded, unclean and unvaccinated person working in her apartment. And there's this old Norse word for safety and security that's uh, still common in Scandinavia, and it's, it's trygg. And, and the et- etymology of this word, it, it, goes, it probably goes back to the same root as trust. And in my view, in this situation of ours, all this worry and <clears throat> hand-wringing concern with, with safety, it seems to belie a, a radical, a basic loss of trust. It's like we have no trust in ourselves, in each other. We have no existential anchoring in religion or anything else. So, so it's like the only refuge we can find, <clears throat> basically, is in the trappings of power. So we, we cry out to the corporate state for help to dispel this anxiety and this this learned helplessness and our actual lack of competence. I'm not going to rant, but but just as like a comparison, when I was like in my late teens, we didn't really think about safety. It wasn't the top of our list of, of concerns. And like the things we did, seeing how fast you could drive on a, on a forest road, it's not something you did after a thorough assessment of the safest course of action. <laughs> but these kinds of things, it helped you grow. I mean, f- fighting in school hallways or, or playing concerts or asking girls out, out for dates, that's not a safe thing. In, in a, it's not safe, but, but you, you grow from these things um, i don't recommend speeding but i mean you, you need to challenge yourself in this way and it seems to me that like any kind of confidence trust in yourself and your own abilities and your friends it's being hammered out of the population being replaced by this kind of servile fear by this radical conformism and it connects to, to the loss of subcultures and all of that but but i then have a question for 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 you cory and, and you varun uh, you spoke, Corey, about how, how people seem to really take to these digital IDs, how they confer this special status, something like a, a symbolic approval of the power structure, maybe something that's implicit in the in the submission involved. And I would like to hear if, if you could tell us more of, of how you see the situation in, in, in Canada and India in re- relation to this, uh, how people take to the vaccine or the, the ID as a as a status symbol, kind of a, a, like a brand, a corporate brand status symbol kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Do you want me to go first, Brian? 
Um, well, that's definitely, um, I mean, they hit the nail right on the head. First of all, I'm not sure if I said Rob Ford or Doug Ford, who were brothers. Um, I, Rob Ford was the former mayor of Toronto and Doug Ford is the premier um, current standing, um, both racist and right wing. Anyway, not sure what I said because I'm just sort of drinking coffee here in the morning, but I was, I was, I, I was meaning to speak about Doug Ford. Um, anyway, because Rob Ford has, has passed. Okay, so back to that question. Um, I shared a video that you, um, Johan, clipped for me that I'd found about digital ID. And that was a couple of weeks ago. I shared it on my Facebook page. I haven't shared it on Twitter yet, but it's a clip of that person, uh, of this person speaking. I don't think we mentioned it on the last podcast. I'm not sure. Um, but basically he was saying that that's how you sell it, right? As an um, entitlement, right? You go to the pub and, and they're laughing on this panel, right? Four rich white guys, they're all laughing. You know, if I have to have a mandatory vax to get into this posh, what's it called? Weatherspoons, I believe some sort of um, popular pub in the UK. He's saying 99% of people won't care. They'll do it. Right. And they're talking very, very candidly. This is like a zoom meeting. They're talking very candidly, people will do it and that they think that, well, people will like that, right? Now, all of a sudden, they have this special status. And, and that's exactly what has happened here. What I see myself in Ontario, the passport, the passports, which um, in white papers, they did not want that name associated with them, but that's what they're being called anyway. Um, the, the passports in Ontario, what I've seen, I mean, I don't go very um, far lately because I can't stand what I see, but definitely that's how it has um, been so far. People find it, um, you know, they're really special. They can go in. I've been to a cafe. I've been told next time um, I could stay. I can go in so I can go in without it. I can go up and I can buy a coffee, um, but now I can't sit there with the rest of the people unless I have my passport. And so this day was the first day it came into place and I, it was pouring rain out. And so I was allowed to stay the next time, probably someone else, um, not this person because they didn't care, but someone else will probably make me leave because I don't have a passport. Okay. And so people that can stay, that gives them a, a very special status. And so far um, people, there's like absolutely um, very, very little dissent that I've seen. Um, people basically that don't have one are not going to be going anywhere or doing anything. There's a lot of pressure on people to get them. I watched right on the same street, people coming up the street, some people masked, um, some people not. So people that were not came up and stood in a line to sit down at outdoor patio. So in the line, they took their mask out of their pocket. Um, the people that weren't already wearing it, they put it on their face. And then they were um, greeted by a server with a mask. Everyone sitting has no mask. And then as soon as they walk through the gate, like this, you know, just this temporary standing little um, gate on the sidewalk, then they can sit and take their mask off. So they're li literally putting it on and then you get six inches over on this side, then you can take it off. And then when you're done your, your, your lunch, the server has one on. And by the way, sir, um, work, the help does not have to be vaccinated. Okay, they, they don't need a pass to work there, the servers and the help in the kitchen and everybody else. And then when you get up to leave, you put your mask on. So 
you know, when people say this is about the follow the science, please explain to me how this is scientific, that the virus can jump over here and then 12 <laughs> inches over here, it doesn't jump on and off the mask in your pocket or your pocket in your pocket. So they're definitely um, rituals and there's yeah. nothing scientific happening here, nothing. But it's something that everyone's very, very um, happy to go along with. They don't even have to be told. They're very, very happy to know to know what. Uh, Corey just got bumped off somehow yeah. there. Okay, I'm going to pick up. And she'll probably click back on here. Varun. Yeah. Uh, oh, she's back. Do, she's maybe. back. Yeah. Well, she's not quite back. Um. But why don't you go ahead and um okay. well uh tomorrow is 27th september and prime minister modi is unveiling the prime minister's digital health mission oh yeah which is people will be given a unique health digital health id that oh. will contain all of their health records and given how the uptake of the vaccine and the Aadhaar card has worked. I would imagine that this is going to be fairly easy to do. The, the workarounds are made impossible. Like you can't function without some of these things in the country. But I'd like to um, just add more to the narcissism angle that was, that was being talked about before. And also in the context of um, quote unquote developing countries like India I think we've always had an abusive relationship with the establishment mm. as a public largely speaking and it is most definitely an imperial hangover which is that the public has to be rectified and that, mm -hmm. that it points towards this um, a mechanism called projective identification where the abuser does not want to recognize certain attributes of itself. So it will externalize them onto a victim and then proceed to try and fix them. So I think largely we function like that. And what that has, uh, how that manifests in society is to bypass all of this neuroses, we need to get corrupt, continuously corrupt. So people find their organic economies around all of these systems and they have done for a very long time. But I think now with the absolute normalization of the narrative that the digital health ID is going to be taken for granted. I don't think anybody is blinking about it either. And that for me is really worrying. It's very worrying that it's just being rolled out and people are going to take it because you won't be able to buy or open a bank account um, or go to certain places and things like this and the 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 entitlement that exists because of how severely we have been subjected to aspirational culture yeah. and access according to western ideals and how this entire idea of digitizing the economy is being sold exactly on that platform of thinking right but it is not going to, there is going to be no um, blowback from the public about this at all. That's what I think is going to happen, which is really, really depressing. It's really depressing thought. Um, yeah. 
Um, Corey, are you back? I don't know what happened there. Did I get uh, cut well, out? CIA, probably. Um, <laughs> uh, but Johan, you had um, something to say. I yeah, and then I can go back to we can go back to Corey. I just, I mean, th- those are truly horrific news, Varun. And and for that reason, I mean, it's completely irrelevant if, if Scandinavia rejects this and, and defines this virus as a equivalent to the seasonal flu. If these things are being institutionalized in, in huge countries like India or the United States and Canada, Scandinavia yeah. is completely irrelevant. Yeah. And I mean, I'll just say that I think it's also that's also the other thing is that because now the larger narrative is now moving, not just from the virus and the, to, well, it was from the virus and the mask mandates. Now it became the vaccines. And now, largely in the public, it's now moving back to politics. It's not going into understanding the, this obnoxious push towards digitizing everything. There is no conversation about that, at least in my public spheres here. You know, mm-hmm. that's really, that's a really, I mean, the veil is back in that sense, right? Like the veil has come back and there's no yeah. conversation about any of that. Sense. No, I I have run into um, absolutely no resistance in Norway to the idea of digitalizing everything. Every single person I've talked to, even very yeah. smart people, people critical of the the COVID narrative, critical of, of the, you know, the previous government, um, have no problem with the digit. They think it's it's um, progress. You know, loom that idea looms. Um, this is progress, and Scandinavians, I think, would be very happy to be seen as um, leaders in this in this futuristic yeah. enterprise that um, is being sold very specifically as uh, uh, um, a project to further equality. And of course, the fact is just the opposite of that, but but that's not that's not how it's being marketed. Anyway, Corey, yeah, I where did I, where did I get chopped off? Uh, that people were loving uh, the. Uh, um, I don't did, remember. <laughs> did it um, did it get cut off? Where I was talking about how you had to stand at the patio to get in. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere yeah. around there. Yeah. Yeah. So you stand at the patio to get in, and once you get in, <clears throat> and you sit down, like literally, just you know, mm. we're talking six steps, and you can take your mask off. No mask, you can't get in. No, now, obviously, that's furthered with the passport. No passport, you can't get in. So, basically, if you have no passport, you can go in to pick up food. Okay. So you can go in, and you can, and I mean what the virus doesn't know if you're sick, right? I mean, this is all non, this is supposed to be scientific and there's no science to any of this. So a sick person technically can go in to pick up their food, right? Everyone else has their passport. So they're allowed to sit. So this is the upper, um, you know, the upper caste um, over here sitting. And they know when you come in, they're assuming that you don't have your passport and that's why you have to take out. And so my, my daughter was yelled at in the restaurant, where's your mask? This woman's sitting down with no mask on, right? She has no mask on. She's eating. Where's your mask? Because you're the peasant now coming in. Right, 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 right. So it's yep. like the server has to have the mask. And so does anyone coming in because, right? So we've, we're creating this, um, cis, um, you know, these levels of status. Well, watching, watching like, 
like Prince Harry and Meghan Markle arrive maskless walking down the corridor at whatever airport it was. And then the cameras assemble and the, the you know, the photo op and they put their masks on um, before the for the photo op. Uh, it is like Hunger Games. You know, there is there is a and there is a sort of shocking acceptance of this new caste system in the West now and, and the unclean and, and the privileged. And it's, um, I suppose, again, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be shocking, but I, I certainly find it uh, shocking and disturbing that, that, um, that this doesn't make people angrier, that there isn't, there isn't a more uh, extreme reaction to this stuff, but, um, but there isn't so far as I can tell. Um, yeah. So Johan, you, or whoever. I was just going to add that I think that's the nature of also um, what Johan was pointing to before about narcissism is that it is the nature of it is in the nature of narcissistic abuse to manipulate the victim in in such a way where the intent and the will for self-preservation is completely neutralized, and in the sense that. Um, the, project, the projected identification is absorbed by the victim and then the victim then proceeds to identify with it and try and resolve it itself. And that's a really dangerous game in that sense. And that has happened in the sense like in the Indian caste system that has happened for centuries also, right? Like it's exactly the same thing. And to demoralize a group entirely through constant barrage of messaging, which we have seen in the last almost two years, that has basically provided for that internationally, I think now. Um, Johan? I, I think that's a great observation really, because I, I think this narcissism is being reproduced at the level of, of people and, and their basic interactions. So you see a kind of narcissist virtue signaling where people are purging these, these anti-vaxxers from their friend lists. And it's the same thing when, when, when people are, are displaying their, their small achievements on Instagram. Like when, when, when guys who, who can lift their own body weights film themselves and then think they're some kind of Nietzschean Superman musing on the inferiority of the, the weak masses. But I was thinking about subcultures because my, my view is that subcultures have, have to a great extent been replaced by fashion trends being recuperated in, in, the, in the market system. And I see less and less in the way of, of unique expressions in, in literature and the arts and so on. Maybe that's, uh, that's just my, my perspective. But I mean, you see even the, the criminal gangs here wearing these expensive and inconspicuous clothes brands. And apparently a lot of our street crime among youths is fueled by the desire to attain these um, status symbols blessed by corporate power, you could say. And I, I was just wondering what the what your view on the, the subcultural scene is in your respective locations. I mean, how is the, the hip hop culture in, in New York, Hiroyuki, or how is the, the industrial scene in, in Canada or the black metal culture in Norway? And is there an equivalent? I think I've asked you, Varun, about this also, but... Maybe it doesn't translate to the the uh, New Delhi context perfectly. I have no idea. Well, Go ahead, Varun. Yeah. Okay. Um, so about a decade ago, there was this guy who was 
is of Indian descent, but I think he grew up in the U.S. And then he came back and he was working here. He is a he's a dancer and a hip hop artist. And in one of the slums, which is like unofficial architecture in southern in the southern district of Delhi, he started a club with the slum kids of break dancing and making graffiti. And at that time, it got it. There was a really good feeling that people started having about how these children are going to be able to express themselves and. Uh-huh. They were brought to bars to come and dance and show their skills and whatever. But that has, over the last decade, translated into a lot of hip-hop music in many states around India. And some of these artists have become really major players in the industry. But the narrative of what they're saying, even though it's anti-establishment, it takes Mm. a lot from very deep subculture America. That is really, it's such a a conflation because the... That is, for me, a complete dilution of the problems that exist here, Mm. which are not being addressed directly, by a majority of them at least. And also riding on top of that is the fashion industry, like you pointed out. Everybody wants to wear what the hip-hop artists in the US are wearing now. Mm. So I've seen those trends change phenomenally right in front of all of us. It's just happened because that consumer culture has backpacked on top of this so-called descent. And in fact, it is transforming all these young kids into consumers only who can rant on YouTube, but nothing really changes, right? Like their situations don't really change. They've just, they've just managed to give, all these people who really need a voice, a false voice, yeah. but also able to convert them into consumers. That's what's oh. happened. Right. Well, I think that that model is <clears throat> is is replicated almost everywhere. The it was probably 35, 40 years ago that you started seeing corporations uh uh, appropriating working class style, street style, uh, and and then turning out a sort of sanitized and diluted version of what they had appropriated. Um, this was certainly most obvious in music, but in popular music, but but it was but it was happening everywhere. And then the parallel track was the professionalization of art that suddenly you weren't an artist if you didn't get an MFA, if you didn't go to university and get, and get some um, accredited, uh, you know, diploma and, and you couldn't, you couldn't teach anywhere without that. And you weren't certainly in theater, you weren't going to get produced anywhere without that in Hollywood. um, The removal of working class voices was almost absolute. It, It took place over 30 years, but, um, but it was, but it essentially eliminated um, uh, any any chance for for the the it, it for for the working class for the underclass to to find their way into positions of of any creative power at all. Uh, it just you know, film of course is is heavily mediated by capital anyway, so that's the most extreme version of it. But but it was, but it was, you know, across the board, what was happening. And um, I think we have reached a place now, we, 
I think, you know, the Western society, at least, um, which I'm more familiar with, but, but maybe it's global to some extent. Um, we have reached a complete exhaust, like creative exhaustion. Uh, Johan and I were talking about this the other day um, on a chat, um, that, that, that modernism was a, a sort of late modernism anyway, post-World War II modernism was, was a final um, recuperation of a whole mm -hmm. lot of different movements. And, but then it, it found itself in, in a kind of a dead end because of the, the, the way in which these platforms and, and mm. mediums were uh, monetized, you know, and, 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 and the funding for these things, because, and I've said this before numerous times that, that when I began in theater, you could put a show on for a few hundred dollars and there'd be a theater somewhere and people would come and you were um, a kind of outlaw Mm. um art um force and and there was an audience for it is the thing you know i mean hundreds of people drove an hour and a half every summer on the weekend to watch the padua festival um that that audience has disappeared now people stay home and there's a, a you know a, a myriad of reasons for this it's hard to get around the cost of getting around the traffic in big cities is impossible to navigate and on and on and on but it's also those people that 30 years ago still were aesthetically educated those people have died off and and the generations that have grown up since then are are sort of <laughs> generations of the screen um, and, and, you know, I saw this teaching at the Polish film school that, that first year students would come in and um, with, with a complete absence of knowledge about the history of film, number one, a kind of shocking uh, apathy uh, in terms of, of their, their uh, curiosity. It, it was just, you know, negligible at best. And, and um things were, were seen in a career term. You were building your brand. That's, mm. that's what it had become. And I think the, you know, since 2008 and the financial crisis, and you listen to, you know, Ernest Wolf or Catherine Ann Fitz or all these people that go on about this that are more knowledgeable about economics than I am, um, we're seeing the reset and the build back better, you know, and green new deal, all of these things that we've talked about that you can read about on Corey's blog, certainly that, that, um, that have been given cover by the, by the pandemic, the pandemic served to obscure a whole lot of stuff that was going on. And um, so we're, we're, kind of slowly arriving at the end of the pandemic narrative, except in Australia and Canada, apparently. Um, we're arriving at the end of it to some degree, and we're, the narrative is now ushering in um, a new fear-mongering about climate, alarmism about climate, and, but most importantly, is selling the idea um, that that the that you should trust the state that all of these people have somehow magically turned over a new leaf and running alongside of that is an almost entire disappearance of um of art i don't know what role art 
as we conventionally understand it, what role that plays in contemporary society. It seems to play none almost other than personal branding. Um, Hiroyuki. Well, um, uh, in terms of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, dissident voices in the uh, culture. Um, when we're walking um, uh, in New York, uh, New York, uh, Brooklyn, um, with those artists, uh, um, uh, there are a few, uh, well, quite a few other uh, artists, um, activists, uh, putting up uh, prints and images uh, on streets. And uh, I was pointing out some of them, and that they were explaining that uh, most of um, uh, images uh, indicate um, uh, things within the corporate uh, politics, uh, messages about uh, uh, AOC, uh, Ginsburg, uh, whatever, um, uh, th th that those things that are acceptable to the uh, uh, establishment, which basically uh, um, delineate the uh, framework of the uh, art market. Uh, today, so there's a huge amount of domestication um, uh, that's happening for generations, and uh, it's been very, very successful. And um, and it, it it also comes from the fact that the uh, this uh, narcissistic tendencies are very, very useful um, in politics. We see those politicians who are. Uh, the, the, the visibly um, uh, psychopathic uh, narcissists, and they are very, very useful in forwarding corporate policies. And when we have those people, we have uh, oppositions that that's sort of legitimate. You know, it makes sense. You know, Trump's doing this or that, right? That's uh, oh. I mean, of course, it's the same as the uh, the other parties doing, but at the same time, it gives um, a meaning of existence uh, to the uh, those um, extremely corrupt um, corporate parties for the uh, oligarchs. So, um, so again, um, having this uh, uh, talk about uh, Trump, this uh, um, and other uh, uh, corporate political villains would um, hard people into this corporate framework in which we are forced to talk their language and talk about options that are provided by them. So right. um, it's, um, <clears throat> it's a very, very difficult situation. And it also it leads to the uh, uh, what Corey was saying about the passport and uh, uh, the, this artificial uh, privileges, which uh, creates uh, um, artificial material reality in which we are forced to navigate. So it is a material reality. You go to uh, stores and you can't get in. Well, other people can get in because they are following their rule. The, uh, the draconian rules. So it's real, you know, it's not imagined anything like that. Um, and we are being forced to live in this thing. And um, so and everything is seamlessly connecting and uh, it's all evil. And um, but <laughs> what can I say? We keep talking about this, you know? Well, I, but I think that, I think it's important to, um, 
a couple of things that occurred to me this week. I mean, look, um, art in quotation marks, because, you know, the, the, the context for art in the time of Dante or uh, Titian or, um, you know, uh, Sophocles was considerably different than it was for Kafka and certainly different than it is for us today. These contexts differ, but art is always mediated by capital almost across the board one way or another. There is a dynamic. That's what art in some sense is always commenting on. Um, its own relationship to to the system in which it finds itself. Uh, it's often it's often elusive that that comment, but but it's invariably there somehow, and that's that's that questioning that process of discernment and evaluation and meditation, that mm -hmm. engagement with the artwork is part of the purpose of of you know it's part of the reason people create. I think mm -hmm. and. Um, uh, the difference today is, though, that uh, we are we are in the last stages of of a capitalist trajectory in which now, you know, the the transference of wealth to the top one or two percent is almost complete. Those people own everything. And there is a kind of people keep using the term, the controlled demolition of capitalism. I don't know who first came up with that. It might've been Corey, but um, the, the point is that, 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 that demolition of capitalism um, is not doing away with capitalism per se. It's, mm. it's, it's simply um, doing away with aspects like, like free markets that the idea of markets, you know, you know that the monopoly monopolization is a bad thing. I mean, it's a given now. And that's part of what the lockdowns did was, was the last gasp of, of the sort of petty bourgeois retail was wiped out in America anyway. So, you know, it's a complex discussion. It's not a, it's not a simple discussion and it, it, it warrants long and thoughtful analysis. I think um, the problem, the other problem besides the Trump, factor when when you talk to people in north america anyway is in the idea of science i mean it is not an accident that 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 trust the science became the slogan for um the pandemic consensus you know the get your vaccination then you won't be killing grandma get your vaccination you won't be a danger to anybody else um, it's the responsible thing to do. You could be part of this, you know, elect in the new, um, the new world order and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's all kinds of symbolism attached to this and metaphors attached to it. But uh, the, the science idea is impervious to, it's impervious to discussion or facts. People don't, I can't tell you the number of times I've talked to people and said, but there are Nobel Prize winning scientists who dissent with, you know, to Anthony Fauci. There are very credible um, and, and established doctors and medical professionals and researchers who dissent it. it people don't want to hear it because it very clearly isn't about actual science it's about this idea of of this kind of artificial 
science as um, a religion almost. I mean, Corey made an astute observation this week that because everybody sees all these discarded masks everywhere, right? Filthy, dirty, single-use masks everywhere. They're polluting the waterways. They're everywhere. If this were a dangerous virus, there'd be biohazard bins set up by the government to dispose of, of these things. And I've talked to nurses and I asked them about, did the mask make any difference? They said, well, if you're in a sterile operating room and you're wearing sterile booties over your shoes and you've scrubbed in to enter this, yeah, then it's important. But, you know, you, you walk into a room uh, off the street, you don't put any covering on your shoes, nothing. You have a mask you've had on all day or two days or three days, it doesn't matter. And you can take it off in six feet um, further on, you have to put it back. I mean, it's kabuki, it's crazy. It has nothing remotely to do with medicine or protection. It's, it's just the, you know, the new religious rituals of this of this, the order of the cleansed, you know, and, and that's, that's all it is. Okay. Um, John, I don't think there's any, at least on my screen, you're unable to put a hand up right now. Okay. So, Go just ahead. so you so, know. Um, okay. So I wanted to just talk, touch upon, I came across a campaign this week and it's, um, I came across Hill and Knowlton's involvement and in a lot going on in Ontario and Canada. So I'm just assuming that they're involved with 80 offices. They're probably, probably working on COVID communications all across the world. Um, they're anyway, people will know them at least this group will from, um, the baby on babies on the, out of the incubators on the cold floors that huge production that they did um, that, John, you can talk about that when I'm done. But basically, Hills, Hill and Knowlton is, um, you won't probably know of these campaigns, but your children probably will. I mean, they're talking about just recently, July 2021, um, an article called The Age of Influence. And it's basically um, throughout everything that's been happening, Black Lives Matter, um, what was that one? Um, there is another one before that that was all organized by NGOs, actually. It came up as a, what was that, March, uh, Women's March. That was all NGO um, done. That was not grassroots as presented. But anyway, they're talking about these huge campaigns. It's another element, everyone recognizing that whole, um, you know, purpose thing where you harness the energy of the people to get what you want. I mean, that's really what's been happening in the marketing end of things, harnessing the youth, harnessing the energy to get what you want. So you can actually make people demand all the solutions that they have. What Hiroyuki, I believe, was speaking of earlier. Um, basically, um, you know, you're, you're screwed only, you're going to die from climate change or this virus. Only we can save you right? You guys can't, can't save yourself. You can't organize and do anything. Only we have the power, the people that have made you sick, the people that have destroyed everything. Only we have the power to save you. So anyway, um, this Helen Knowlton, they've got some, they work with TikTok and TikTok is, um, is, works with Facebook and it works with Halo, um, Purpose, United Nations. I guess what I'm getting at, these are all all this is interwoven. This is all global. This is all targeting youth, right? They don't care what John Stepling really thinks. They don't care about Hiroyuki or um, Johan 
or Varun or myself, they're really going after um, the young and they have, so in Canada, there's this thing, what's it called? Um, let me try to find it. It's called the, the best shot or the, there's one 19 to zero. So that's about building confidence and vaccines, get Canadians vaccinated. And then if you start looking around at all their different campaigns, it's all behavioral change driven. Um, for instance, vaccines for life, blah, blah, blah. Like it's all huge. I think what people don't understand. So right now, of course, people are very, very proud to have their passports because they did their, you know, their, they did their patriotic duty. They went and got their jobs. They're now part of the phase three clinical trials where we sit back and wait and see what happens. Right. So um, they've done that, um, but they don't understand even Zika, you know, I was thinking of that, the patents on the Zika virus. The next thing you know, the summer, oh, lo and behold, media tells us we have a huge mosquito breakout and the Zika mosquitoes here. Oh, would you know, up comes on your passport. Oh, have you had your Zika vaccine? Up oh, passport doesn't work anymore. So people are not thinking long-term what that passport is going to um, demand of them. You know, what that status is going to demand of them. And then, um, People, I mean, I, I'll share more about this Hilton or sorry, Helen Hilton, all these strategies later this week, maybe on my Twitter, um, show people what's going on there. But I mean, this, these are huge global marketing firms, right? And they work with purpose. They work with the United Nations. They work with the World Economic Forum um, and, and they're targeting. Yeah, they're targeting more than anything youth and the influencer, what Vroom was spot, speaking of earlier, that is the key to everything, right? The influencer, John, you saw that new Greta Thunberg image right. with oil dumped on her head. I mean, if you, they'll be after those firemen, those artists, right? They're gonna, I mean, Helen Noltman's gonna send a scout out to find those guys and, right. and, try, and try to use them, right? Of to course. advance on the yeah. elite ruling class agenda. But unfortunately, like where, <laughs> you know, movements back in the day, the Black Panthers are not educated, educated, even children, right? You see classroom, you see those old photos of, of the children learning about imperialism, learning about government, learning about oppression, learning about, um, you know, um, third world countries, um, empowerment, all these things, um, fighting, fighting, fighting global imperialism. Now we've had while everyone's busy on their phones, those corporations have tapped into children's minds, right? And they, they have um, this, you know, they have this, this highway going from, from their ideology to your children's mind, right through that cell phone, right through that mobile. And they've been doing it for, for years. And, and they do it, as we know, through on movies and, and TV shows and everything else. But we, we've really failed in that regard, I think, to educate you know, the, the youth, right. And now they've, they're, they've been, um, you know, their brains have been hijacked. Basically they're the corporations are actually molding their ideologies. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think there's no question about that. And I think the, and this is why I am forever harping on the importance of aesthetics. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the culture and art is the, the, uh, just an absolutely indispensable aspect of society if you are to work towards anything um, like you know sanity and equality and 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 because we're we're looking at a society today in the West 
um, that is extraordinarily, uh, and we talked about this last week, the mental health in the West has deteriorated dramatically. Uh, there are enough studies done now that people's vocabularies have shrunk like 20% over the last 30 years. It's directly proportional to, to how much people um, have started mm -hmm. to use smartphones. I mean, people have become uh, pretty much subliterate across the board. Yeah. They can't read anymore. And so they can't engage with culture the same way. Culture that is at all demanding is going to be rejected. All you have to do is look at, at the, you know, the new shows on television that across the board are infantile. There's endless numbers of fantasy shows, um, sci-fi fantasy, uh, teen shows and comedies. And uh, they are very rudimentary. They follow very trusted and familiar patterns and formulas. And that's how people respond to it. And people engage with these shows as if they're engaging with friends. Yeah. If, they, if they used to have, you know, conversations at the cafe and discuss things. Now they talk to their computer through social media. They talk to the world on their computer through social media and, mm -hmm. and, and they view, I mean, people will talk about the new episode of whatever show uh, is on right now, as if they are talking about real life. It's mm -hmm. very disconcerting to read the comments on these kinds of threads because you're not sure if there's any irony in what is being said at all. And I suspect there's almost none. And so that's one of the problems that, that, um, that the bourgeoisie, the educated classes are now, uh, and the children of those classes are now probably the stupidest people um, in the world. And the, those least exposed to a, the, the, the lumpen proletariat, um, who suffer in a, you know, a jillion other ways and are exhausted from, from toil and, and insecurity, but they are probably saner in my opinion, um, than, than the people that are the most visible in media. Um, Johan. Yeah, that, that of the dumbing down situation is of course a, a very complex chapter by itself, but, but I, I just, thought I'd read you a few lines of um, what I would consider a kind of meta-commentary from uh, Thucydides, again, from the, the Peloponnesian <laughs> War. Uh, he, he discusses how <clears throat> the functioning of, a, of an oligarchic conspiracy in classical Athens, and, and this is 2,400 years ago, I'll, I'll just go ahead. Those who took the floor were of the conspiracy and the speeches that they pronounced had been submitted in advance to the examination of their friends. No opposition manifested itself among the remainder of the citizens who were frightened by the number of conspirators. When someone tried, and despite everything, to contradict them, one soon found a convenient way of making him die. The murderers weren't found, and no pursuit was made of those once suspected. The people didn't react and were so terrorized that they estimated themselves happy, even in remaining mute, if they escaped the violence. Believing the conspirators much more numerous than they were, the people felt completely impotent. The town was too large and they, they didn't quite know each other, so that it, was not, it wasn't possible for them to discover what it really was, the, the conspiracy. 
In these conditions, so shameful were the people that they could not confide their grief to anyone. Thus, one had to renounce engaging in an action against the guilty ones because it would have been necessary to address oneself either to an unknown person or a person of knowledge in whom one didn't have confidence. In the Democratic Party, personal relations were everywhere stamped with scorn, and one always asked oneself if he with whom one had business wasn't conniving with the conspirators. They were actually among the conspirators, men whom one could never believe that they had rallied themselves to the oligarchy. Yeah, um, I'm always happy to listen to Thucydides. You know, it reminds me of something, and I before, let me just interject this quickly, and then um, whoever else wants to add on um, or introduce another subject here. But um, I was on press TV today, and there was a discussion about the JCPOA, the, the Iran nuclear deal that the U.S. pulled out of, Trump tore it up, and blah, blah, blah. And uh, as as I was ready to go on, I was thinking, you know, this is the, the real story here, and I ended up saying this, actually. The real story is that, that uh, we're looking at the U.S. military dwarfing all the any other military on the planet by a wide margin. The U.S. has 900 military bases everywhere. Um, the U.S. has 6,000 nuclear warheads or something, um, but they're stationed all over in other countries. The U.S. has nuclear warheads in Belgium, in the Netherlands, in Italy, in Turkey, in France, in the U.K. Well, the U.K. has their own even. Um, we have non-signatory countries that are nuclear powers like uh, Pakistan, like India, and of course, Israel that doesn't even admit they have nukes. And you think, who drew up the rules for this game exactly? That Iran is being demonized and told they have to submit to these inspections and all this stuff. If Iran said what Israel said, for example, that you know, we choose not to answer you um, because it, it creates a, a viable ambiguity that will uh, be a, its own form of deterrence. If Iran said something like that, they, they would, would elicit outcries and intensified sanctions and all of these things. The point is that, that then on the flip side of that, because I just happened to be looking this up the other day, the largest seaports, commercial seaports in the world, the 10 largest, eight of them are in China, which is amazing. The only one not in China, the only two not in China, one is at the port of Singapore, which means it might as well be Chinese, and and Rotterdam, that's it, (laughs) just Rotterdam. It's the only one that makes the list that's not China. That's a staggering fact, right? The Chinese economy dwarfs everybody else. The American military dwarfs everybody else. Mm. We're in this strange world. And yet these, these, this political theater plays out every day that, oh, we must sign the JCPOA and Trump sends diplomats here and they pull diplomats out of there. And it's just all, it's just all, you know, um, a, a puppet show. Uh, without any real meaning. The, I mean, all these, their supply chains are interlinked. Everybody has backdoor deals. Economies continue. Um, there, there is a, a pronounced, 
you know, sinophobia in the West. I don't know how real it is at the leadership level. There is a Russophobia. I don't know how real that is at the leadership level um, because these deals get made. But the point, this is a long preamble to the point, which is that, that all of public narrative is corrupted at this point. It is all propaganda, whether it's about, you know, public health, whether it's about U.S. foreign policy or, or NATO, whether it's about, you know, conflict in the South China Sea, whatever it's about, um, we are only getting the stuff that has been scripted by firms like Hill and Knowlton. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of other ones. I remember they, we first started McKinsey. getting conversant with them during the Balkans War. What? Uh, I'm sorry, like what? McKinsey. Yeah. And John, if you could just exp um, talk to people who don't know about it, maybe yeah. um, younger, younger listeners that don't know about that incubator thing, you know? Yeah, please. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, yeah, no, the, I remember it was during the Balkans, the, 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 um, the whole Milosevic saga, the invention of that narrative, that one started becoming aware of, um, of these, these Madison Avenue firms that worked with the State Department. Anyway, I know Varun, you wanted to add something here too um, about art. So I want to I wanted to let you get that in here. Okay. As I was thinking, um, especially because you mentioned Dante, because that's, we could look at that as a very personal internal journey, which is represented in writing. And <clears throat> even if it is um, by what you might call common understanding religious, it's not necessarily just that. I think it's, it's getting in touch with the chaotic human being inside everyone to resolve um, a lot of issues that everybody has. But what has happened, I think, especially also because you brought up the context of art and what happened to it, I think that disconnection was filled in with an absolute abstraction and a focus on um, hyper-real ideas, which were textualized rather than lived experience. Mm. And so that, and, and in, in, in a sense that the next automatic thing that happens is the creation of the digital highways that Corey is talking about because now it's all hyper real and like you just said is that it's all compromised in that sense like there is no real conversation and so right. I, and that's why his story in the beginning is so beautiful to I think in this context especially is because some people are taking that effort without the profit motive to reconnect through the medium of art back into society. I think that's the that's the turn, which I think is really beautiful. Yeah, I do too. I I think what they are doing is what more and more people should be doing. That that I think too many people, younger people, look at art um, as this career that you know one has to make a living out of it, and you're only validated if. If a major gallery hires, uh, you know, signs a deal with you or Hollywood signs you up to, to write something or you're getting your plays produced at equity houses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and all of that stuff has to be rejected. It's just 
dead. It's just moribund, and it really has to be rejected. And and we've seen Hiroyuki has pointed this out, but I have to. Johan has the domestication of artists, the 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 castration of of artistic um, uh, energy by mixing my metaphors there. Um, but but you know the 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 sort of the landscape, the cultural landscape is controlled by these very few, um, very powerful electronic platforms. And, and one, of the, one of the insidious aspects of the lockdowns and the, the rituals that have been put into place by this pandemic are that people are being encouraged increasingly to stay home, that you can do it on, online, you know, virtual travel, telehealth care, teleeducation. And I saw a thing that the future of, of airline travel, you wouldn't have real windows, you'd have screens that would have electronic images of what was going on outside. I mean, what the fuck? You know, this is like, this is madness. This is just madness. And uh, when that kind of idea gets floated without, without laughter breaking out everywhere, um, I truly start to worry. I worry about my children. I worry about, you know, my grandchildren. Um, I start to think, I, I don't know what level of, of, of insanity exists out there. But, you know, to end, to go back to the U.S. is a very unhealthy place. It's, it's mentally unhealthy. People take tons of, of, of psychological drugs, antidepressants, psychotropics, whatever. Um, people are physically unhealthy. Their obesity is, is, um, is a genuine epidemic. Um, stress, hypertension is epidemic. This is what people are really dying of. And uh, the idea that hospitals are, that visits to hospitals in the future will be limited uh, because, you know, you can do it online uh, is, is, uh, it just speaks to the disregard of humanity. All of this stuff is for the privileged upper one or 2%. That's it. It is Hunger Games. I mean, it's terrifying to me. All right, final thoughts from everybody? I think... Okay, go ahead, Corey. Okay, well, I just think when we're talking about that, um, in the same way that people can buy that coach bag and sort of you know, feel they have some sort of affiliation or something, you know, they identify with, you know, again, this is why the marketing firms use influencers. Um, they want to be like that person, you know, Kardashian or whoever it is that they, you know, want to emulate. And that's what those coach bags not do. Like we've seen a lot of images through, um, media about the elites not wearing masks right and I even think this digital ID that allows you to go in and take your mask off and all these things it makes people think I'm again identifying with the ruling class identifying with the AOC identifying with on these people I'm, I'm part of that crowd right yep, so it, yep. so that's another another thing I just thought of the name of the other advertising firm that that during the um hmm the ball and it was Ruder Finn, mm -hmm. um, Hill and Knowlton and Ruder Finn. 
Um, uh, Johan, Hiroyuki, Varun, last thoughts? Sure, I'll just throw a question out there for, for uh, each of you and, and every, everyone who listens to this, which I think needs to be asked and this isn't really being asked now. And that's the question of what the purpose of politics is, what the purpose of society really is, because I think the answer to these questions is key in our current situation. Since if, if our rulers implement solutions to problems that actually in, in practice undermine or eliminate the, the very meaning of, of society as such, then the cure is obviously worse than dis, the disease. Uh, and, and every new technology that is imposed upon us, I think, must be interrogated in this way. But, but if we, we can't even ask the question, if we fail to even ask the questions, we, we won't be able to, to see these kinds of things. So what's right. the purpose of politics? That's that's great. That's great. Um, uh, maybe people will write us. Um, Varun? I just got one thought to say that um, I mentioned this even last year and on an Instagram post, I think, but that I think it's imperative that we use the word now. I think the change of language can reflect the change in philosophy on how we deal with the establishment. And instead of calling them leaders, we need to start calling them representatives so they can be held accountable. Rather than taking <clears throat> taking personal choices as representation of the group, call them running dog imperialists. That could work <laughs> for me too. I think that's what Mao called them. Anyway, uh, Hiroyuki. Well, I, um, uh, in relation to what uh, um, Johan just said, I've been really thinking that um, we uh, we probably need to recognize ourselves as uh, social beings, um, mm. uh, um, an aspect of our species to solve problems as collective, uh, being harmonized uh, our existence uh, with the environment as a collective. Mm. And, uh, and what's going on with the authoritarian um, society is that it um, destroys our, our us as a collective and colonize us as a collective so that they can manage. So this is a really, really sinister um, act of colonizing our species. Yeah. So uh, that's that's what I've been feeling and uh, seeing ourselves as beings uh, that doesn't end with our lifetime. We have connections to the past. We have connections to the future. And we stand with the people who've been putting efforts to make yeah. it better. You know? <clears throat> well, I know that I find myself, this is my final, I find myself um, drawn more and more toward, um, well, I mean, philosophy, but but theology as well, and the study of ancient texts more and more. And I read stuff that probably would be classified as religious texts. Uh, because I've, I keep thinking there is something to be reclaimed. There's a number of things to be reclaimed that have been lost. And uh, there feels to be so many cultural dead ends at the moment. You know, I know two young people in their 20s. Um, both kind of former students of mine, both extraordinarily smart. One, it has taken uh, seven years to get her film ready to be made, and it's going to be made this year. 
And to get it made, you just had to submit and get vaccinated. Um, same with another guy in LA who, uh, to keep working, had to get vaccinated. Another guy I know who owns a restaurant and bar, um, he's going to have to check to see if all his workers are vaccinated. And if they're not, he's going to have to fire them. So, the, you know, I look at these people, I think it shouldn't take you seven years to create anything, you know, well, I mean, some things, but that's, but not a Hollywood movie, you know, and, and uh, it's exhausting because these are people without connections and leverage. And, and so it's, it's a treadmill people need to get off of. And uh, I think the future lies in what all the things that we can imagine would be associated with projects like those New York firefighters and, mm. and their cultural walks. Mm. So um, anyway, I want to thank everybody. And uh, I'll, I'll add, a, if anybody has any, you guys, book titles or articles, uh, we'll include in the links. Um, you know, I think for aesthetics, I'm going to mention it again, because it, it's an incredibly difficult text. But Adorno's aesthetic theory is mm. is mandatory reading, I think. Um, minimum morality is probably mandatory too. Uh, but anyway, uh, send them to me, and I'll get them up when when we get this uh, when we get this up on SoundCloud. So thank you guys, and um, I will talk to you all soon. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye.